How's it going everybody? You're listening to the Ravens Grove. I'm your host Dahi and this is yet another version of a themed episode of Random Fact Dumps. However, today we're going to be talking about something very, very dear to me. We're going to be talking about movies and TV shows. As many of you may know, I'm a pretty big geek, and so this is a chance for me to talk about some of my favorite facts behind some of my favorite TV shows and movies. Now, before we get started, we do have some fairly big spoilers for the following franchises. We've got, uh, for a few dollars more, the Dollar Trilogy. That's got major spoilers. We've got spoilers for that 70s show. We've got spoilers for the Disney film Atlantis The Lost Empire. We've got spoilers for The Dark Knight in the Dark Knight Trilogy by Christopher Nolan. We've got spoilers for Lord of the Rings. We've got spoilers for the first and second Mummy movies, The Mummy and The Mummy Returns, both of which were starring Ben Fraser. And we've also got spoilers for the Jurassic Park movies. In addition to that, we've also got the following trigger warnings. We've got animal death, drug mentions, and sexual assault mentions. So if any of those are in any way an issue for you, please give this episode a miss. Alright, now that those are out of the way, let's get started. So, the first one I want to talk to you about is the TV show, That 70s Show. Now, I grew up in the 90s, I was born in 93, and I grew up in the 90s and early 2000s, and... Honestly, that 70s show is just one of those shows that you can watch just for the nostalgia and just veg out to. It's a really, f- just, it's a good show to just relax with. You know, you don't have to think too hard about it, but it's still got an engaging storyline and it's still very funny. Now, the thing is, it's got a pretty big cast. Like, there were six main characters, then they got the adults, and then all the guest stars. But one of the big ones that was introduced, I think, in season two was Tommy Chong's character of Leo. Now, if you recognize the name Tommy Chong, there's a reason for that. He's one half of the famous comedy duo Cheech and Chong, very famous for their marijuana-themed comedy. Tommy Chong is a well-spoken marijuana advocate, and he's honestly, by all accounts, he's a really, really cool guy. So he's a major, major star in the show. Like he, um, he was Hyde's boss in for a couple of seasons, and then I think it was season five, he disappears. And it, he's written off the show saying that he just left, up and left without no warning. And obviously the characters are pretty upset about that. Now the thing is, that was done for a reason. See, Tommy Chong was actually arrested. Yeah, see, during this gigantic sting operation by the US government in conjunction with the DEA, he was arrested for selling marijuana water pipes, bongs. Now, despite the fact you can actually use tobacco in a bong, which is actually why they're called water pipes, well, that was his argument in court, but Tommy Chong actually got sent to jail for about two years for it. And, um, well, that's why he was written off the show. He did not appear at all in season six or season seven. He came back in season eight, and for the record, he is due to come back for the spin off That 90 Show, which is about to come out on Netflix, and as is most of the original cast. So, I'm honestly, I'm really looking forward to that show. It looks pretty funny. And so, yeah, that's why he was written off the show. He was in jail. Now, the second one, in fact, we're going to talk about is about one of my favorite Westerns of all time, for a few dollars more. Now, be warned, this Western is not for kids, is most definitely an adult-focused movie. It is, honestly, it's my favorite Western of all time. Like, is part of the Dollars trilogy, like The Man With No Name, Clint Eastwood, done by Sergio Leone in the 60s, classic spaghetti Westerns. Now, 
For a few dollars more, in my opinion, is the best one in the trilogy. And I'm willing, I'm willing to bet that there are people who are listening to this who are saying, no, for, uh, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly is the best, or A Fistful of Dollars is the best. I get that. They're all great films. But for me, For a Few Dollars More is the best one. It was the first one I saw. It's the first... It's got the most iconic soundtrack to me. I just... I love that film. Now, the thing is, what most people don't know is it's actually a pretty big film in terms of cinema history. It's got three... Not just one, but three cinema firsts in that film. It has the first on-screen use of marijuana, which the bad guy El Indio uses in one memorable scene. He, it's got the first on-screen death of a horse, which is a crucial introductory part of one character. And it's also, and this is a sad part, it's also got the first on-screen depiction of rape. Now, obviously, I do not approve of any form of sexual assault, like, Clearly, this is one of the worst crimes a human being is capable of committing, but it's a big moment, because up until that point, if there was sexual assault, it hadn't been shown on screen. This was the first depiction of it actually on screen, and so, it, as much as I abhor sexual assault in real life, it has to be said that this was a major moment in cinema history. So yeah, bit of a sad one, but that's just the way it is. Now, a light note, fact number three, is actually about one of my favorite Disney films of all time. Um, like I said, I grew up in the 90s and early 2000s, right in the whole Disney crazy period, where they were making films like Treasure Planet, Brother Bear, Meet the Robinsons, that kind of thing. Like the really amazing quality ones before Disney went full CGI and just, in my opinion, ruined it. But my favorite Disney film of all time has got to be Atlantis, The Lost Empire. Like, it's an amazingly good film. Like, it's set in 1914. It's all about this expedition to find Lost Sea of Atlantis. The main character, Milo Thatcher, is voiced by Michael J. Fox. And to be honest, this was a major influence on me as a kid. I actually got a degree in archaeology at university here because that film helped inspire a lifelong love of archaeology for me. And one of the things I love about it is that Milo isn't a typical action hero like he's not like John McClane or Rambo he's not this big muscle bound guy he's quite skinny like very very skinny he's a nerd basically he relies on his brains rather than his fists and that in its of itself is actually why he's probably my favorite Disney protagonist like he's a genuinely smart kind good guy who gets caught up in this big treasure hunt for the lost sea of Atlantis when he just wants to study the culture and so he's he's the good guy in the film. Now, the thing about it is that I have a love of languages. I always have. I've always been, well, not to shoot my own horn here, but I'm, I'm okay. I'm pretty good at learning languages, basically. And one of the things that I really love about this film is that they actually created their own unique language for the Atlanteans in the film. And this wasn't just a few lines of dialogue. No, this was a full-on language. See, they contacted the guy who actually helped create the Klingon language for Star Trek, and he went and asked them, okay, what are the basis for these characters, like, linguistically speaking? They said, the filmmaker said that they wanted it to be like that the Atlantean language is the root dialect for all major languages on the planet. So the Atlantean language is heavily based on Proto-Indo-European, which is the root language for a lot of the world's languages. Like, eh, most European languages are based on Proto-Indo-European, as are quite a few Middle Eastern languages. Now, I'm willing to admit that there are quite a few languages in the world. In fact, the most dominant spoken language is Chinese. That's not Proto-Indo-European. Native American languages and African languages, they are not based on Proto-Indo-European. 
But the European languages and Middle Eastern languages, a lot of them can trace the linguistic roots back to this one language. Bear in mind, this is a language that's spoken thousands upon thousands of years ago. It is an ancient language, and so we're using our best approximation of what it sounded like. This linguist actually went and used that and created an entire language for the Atlantis film. In fact, it's that's one of the reasons why I love it. The sheer wealth of knowledge that and detail that went in this film. In addition, fun fact for you, that if you know the comic Hellboy, or if you've seen the Hellboy films, you might know the creator of Hellboy, Mike Mignola. He's a well-known comic book writer and artist. Now, the thing is, he was actually in charge of the artistic design for Atlantis Lost Empire, which is a 2D animated film with CGI elements. And if you watch the film, you can clearly see his influence. It's just, like I said, I could talk about that film all day. It's one of my, it's probably my favorite Disney film. My favorite Pixar film, for the record, is Brave. I love that movie. But my favorite regular Disney film is definitely Atlantis. Anyway, the fourth fact is actually a bit of a fun pun. Um, how many, I'm going to bet that most of you listening to this will have been at least familiar with the Dark Knight trilogy by Christopher Nolan. If you haven't seen it, I would recommend giving it a try. Like, I know that superhero films aren't for everyone, and The Dark Knight is, well, it's one of the darker superhero films out there, but it's also one of the best made. Like, in comparison to the goddamn dumpster fire that was Ben Affleck as Batman, Christian Bale is exemplary as Batman. He was the Batman before uh, Ben Affleck. And, honestly, I'm a a lifelong Batman fan. I read my first Batman comic when I was about eight. It was Batman The Long Halloween. I actually own a copy of it. It is one of my favorite comics of all time. And the Dark Knight trilogy used The Long Halloween as heavy inspirational material, because that comic is all about, like, the rise of the supervillains and how the supervillains went to war with the mob bosses in Gotham. If you've seen the recent film, The Batman, that's also one of the major inspirations for that film as well. So, yeah, definitely worth a read if you're into comics. Now, the thing is that, you know the scene where Harvey Dent is under attack in The Dark Knight and Batman wants to go after him, but it's the middle of the day, and so he's um, he's dressed up in a suit at winter, and Alfred goes, we'll be wanting the bat pod, sir. It's the middle of the day, Alfred, not very subtle. Ah, oh, the Lamborghini, then. Oh, yeah, it's much more subtle. Now, that may seem like a bit of a dig at Batman on the part of Alfred, and it, to be fair, it is. But the thing is that the the model Lamborghini that Bruce Wayne drives is actually in and of itself a pun. See, the Dark Knight film came out in 2008, which means it was filmed in 2007. Now, the thing is, the main Lamborghini at the time was a Lamborghini Murcielago. This is a bilingual, or actually trilingual pun, because Murcielago means the same thing in Portuguese and Spanish. Can you guess what it means? It means bat. That's right, he's driving the Lamborghini Bat. And of course, it's black, and it is just such a brilliant linguistic pun. And honestly, I, I'm such a fan of that film. It, Heath Ledger's performance in that movie was truly chilling as a joker. He poured his heart and soul in that film. The soundtrack by Hans Zimmer is unbelievable. It is an amazing piece of cinema history. Now, number five is also about movies. And more specifically, it's about one of my favorite film franchises of all time, the Lord of the Rings franchise. Now, say what you will about the Hobbit franchise, and I'm not ever going to talk about the Rings of Power series on Amazon Prime. I have a personal hatred of that show that borderline pathologic, because I'm a lifelong Lord of the Rings fan. I read The Hobbit when I was nine. My dad and I read The Lord of the Rings together when I was ten. 
it to this day it is a one of my favorite series of books and tv shows of all time and tolkien's work stands head and shoulders above nearly any other sci-fi and fantasy writer in the world i mean the only one can come close to his level of detail is terry pratchett or philip pullman in my opinion now the thing is that in the lord of the rings movies Liv tyler who's a very famous actress she plays the role of arwen who is an elven princess and aragorn's love interest now the thing is that she has got naturally quite a high-pitched speaking voice. Like, if you look at interviews of her, she's got naturally quite a squeaky voice. And yet, in Lord of the Rings movies, she's got quite a deep voice. And that's because that Liv Tyler actually deliberately lowered her voice register for the film. She didn't want to have Arwen having a whole squeaky voice, so she actually adopted this almost husky, I guess you could say, kind of a bit like Jessica Rabbit type voice, but without the inherent sexuality. And so... It's really quite interesting watching that film and seeing how it was done. But if you do that, it's not you weren't the only person who knows the difference. You see, Steven Tyler's dad is the rock star. Well, Liv Tyler's dad is the rock star Steven Tyler from Aerosmith, the frontman and lead singer. And apparently, they saw Lord of the Rings together in the films. When he saw her scenes, he actually asked her, "Hey, did someone dub your voice?" Because he did not believe that that was actually her doing that voice, which is kind of crazy. So, yeah, interesting fact for you. Fact number six is actually about the Mummy movies. Now, regardless of the Tom Cruise disaster that was the supposed Mummy movie, that was just a dumpster fire, and the third Mummy movie, Tomb of the Dragon Emperor, which we do not mention, the first two Mummy movies, The Mummy and The Mummy Returns, well, put it this way, as an archaeologist, they are some of the most inaccurate films on the planet. As a moviegoer and someone who likes a good action comedy, they are some of the funniest, best-made action movies I've ever seen. The writer and director Stephen Summers, he did an amazing job, but Brendan Fraser stands alone in that film, and his chemistry with Rachel Weisz is phenomenal. The soundtrack is absolutely beyond belief. It is an amazing piece of cinema. Both of them are. I mean, they're not going to be winning any Oscars, but they certainly have won the hearts and minds of a lot of people who just want a good time with a movie. Now, the thing is that this fact is actually about how badly inaccurate they are and why they were banned in Egypt. Yeah, you heard me right. See, the first two Mummy movies were actually banned in Egypt for quite some years because they were so inaccurate, they painted Egyptian culture in a bad light, which, let's be honest, Egypt is one of the oldest civilizations on the planet. Like, if you're looking at sheer timeline, Egypt has got... A absolute they dominate most of the world's history like the pyramids were being built while mammoths were still running around in Siberia that gives you an idea of just how old Egyptian archaeology is now the thing is that the reason that the mummy movies are so inaccurate is that they're remakes of the original 1930s horror classic the mummy starring Boris Karloff at the time Egyptian archaeology was still well, not in its infancy, but it was still very young. I mean, Tutankhamun's tomb had been discovered in 1922. It was still very new as a science. As such, this film was sensationalizing it. It was sensationalizing the whole thing about the mummy's curse that was said to bring down uh, Howard Carter and, and Lord Carnarvon. It was a big, big box office hit at the time. And so when Stephen Summers decided, you know, I'm going to remake this, he tried to keep it as close to the original as possible while updating the CGI, giving its tweaks to the storyline, that kind of thing. Now, the thing is that this means that it's not going to be accurate. 
It's deliberately written to be accurate to the 1930s show. It's not written to be accurate to actual Egyptian archaeology. Now, the first Mummy film was banned immediately upon release. The second one, same thing, until about, I think it was 2004, because the the second Mummy film came out in 2001, right? It was in 2004 that an international group of archaeologists led by Zahi Hawass, who at the time was the head of the Egyptian Department for Antiquities, he decreed that while it was extremely inaccurate, it was harmless to Egyptian reputation overall. So, you can see the mummy movies in Egypt now, but you're not going to be popular if you do. Now, our final fact for today is about Jurassic Park. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I was actually born in 1993, which is the year Jurassic Park came out. And I remember the first time I saw it, I was terrified of the raptors. They scared the hell out of me. Now, the thing is that, obviously, the raptors in the film are extremely intelligent. And that's actually accurate to real life. They, Dromaeosaurids, like Deinonychus, Velociraptor, they are considered to be the most intelligent of all dinosaurs based on brain compared to body size. But what you may not know is that the raptors in Jurassic Park are actually inaccurate in a very big way. They're about twice the size of a real-life Velociraptor. You see, a Velociraptor in real life, Velociraptor mongoliensis, to give it its full scientific name, is maybe the size of a border collie. They are not big animals. They are quite small. They're maybe one meter in height, one meter in length, maybe half a meter in height. Now, the raptors that you see in Jurassic Park, they are nearly two meters in length and one half meters in height. Now, this raises a very real problem because they are not historically accurate to the paleontological record. However, and this is the big moment, right around the time Jurassic Park was released in 93, paleontologists in the US actually discovered a new type of dromaeosaurid, a very close relative of Velociraptor called Utahraptor. The thing is, Utahraptor is actually size accurate to the Jurassic Park movies. But it is incredible, because it is literally the dimensions of the ones in the Jurassic Park films, and yet, at the same time, they insisted on using Velociraptor, because they'd done all the dubbing, they'd done all the film prep and everything, it was always Velociraptor. The way they go around that in the film is saying that they tweaked the DNA to be with frogs, and they made them bigger because they're meant to be like a theme park attraction type deal, you see? And so, you can kind of explain that side of things, I guess, but it really doesn't change the fact that they're calling them Velociraptors and they're clearly just too big. Anyways, that's about all we have time for today, so folks, so thanks for listening to Raven's Grove. I've been Dahi, you've been awesome, I'll talk to you in the next episode. See ya.